Well, uh, we are starting a new series this morning in the in the book of First John. We're gonna. It's a short book, uh, but we're gonna spend a few weeks in it, kind of looking at the story at, or looking at the letter that John writes to his church. Um, as a matter of fact, last week we looked at another letter that John wrote to the churches. That was the book of Revelation. When we wrapped up the story of Scripture. In the book of Revelation, obviously, it's the end of the Bible. It's the apo uh, uh, apocalyptic scripture or scriptures that talk about what's to come. And God uses John to write to the church and write to us and to remind us to stay faithful and to remind us that God is finishing his story. He is still writing. But today we're looking at a little bit of a different uh, side of John. John, if you know his story, he is writing, he is a Apostle, He is a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12, more specifically one of the three that Jesus held very close to him. And he's writing to a church who's going through a storm themselves. He's writing to churches that are experiencing the hardships around them. We all know what it feels like to be in a storm. If you've been around for any amount of time, you've probably been caught up in a rainstorm or, or, or you're out enjoying the day and suddenly the clouds or the sky goes dark and the clouds give away and there's torrential rain and all of that. You, feel, you, you know what that feels like. Me personally, I remember a time when I was uh, early college, I was uh, with my family, we, had, we made this trip down to SeaWorld, and we're enjoying our day, it was a great day, uh, we're enjoying the attractions, doing all of the things as we usually do, and suddenly we hear thunder, and lightning is uh, coming out, and, and the, the clouds give way, and it is just raining cats and dogs in that, in that park, and so they tell us, everyone get out of the public, uh, open, go find your cars, get back to your cars, and so we're all making our way. Now, if you can imagine SeaWorld, it's a fairly large park, and there's hundreds, if not a few thousand people trying to make their way out the door. And so my family, we're, we're doing the same. So it's my dad and my mom, my brother, my sister. We're all making our way out. And as we do, suddenly we realize that we're one short. My sister, who was in middle school age at that point, suddenly disappeared. And we're looking around, and we're looking at the crowds, and we can't find her. And so we come up with this plan, and we say, all right, dad and brother, go off to the car, wait there, just in case she makes, makes it out there. Mom and myself will look around, and we're in the middle of this downpour where you can't see two feet in front of you. We're frantically searching. We're screaming her name. We're looking through, uh, we're looking through the stores. We're running into restrooms. We're looking for my sister. Can't find her. And so we say, at this point, I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm angry at my sister for letting go and just kind of going off and doing her thing. But I look at my mom, and she has this calm spirit about her. She's calm. And she says, we'll be okay. She, she knows where to go. She'll get there. But to me, I'm frantic. And in the, in this, in the midst of the storm, I'm, I, I am just, I'm losing my calm. So finally, we make it to the car. She's not there yet, but she does make her way back to the car. And so now we're sitting inside this car. We are drenched. We are wet. I mean, the car is all fogged up, and we're just, we're, I'm angry, and I'm, I'm upset. And I look over at my mom, and she has that smile on her face. I'm going, how can she smile? Why isn't she more mad than I am? It's her daughter. Uh, uh, no. One thing I learned from my mom in that moment was, it was a confidence that she had 
that God would protect her children. That yes, God, she was confident that my sister would make her way back, but in the midst of that storm, she knew who was holding her. She knew who was keeping us. In the midst of the storm, how do you find joy? John is writing to a church that's, that is in the midst of their storm. I mentioned to you John was one of the disciples. John, he was early on selected as one of the disciples, and he'd followed Jesus through thick and thin. He'd seen miracle after miracle. He had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He had seen Jesus uh, uh, heal the sick. He had seen him do miraculous things with food. He had seen th all sorts of things that no ordinary rabbi of their time would do, and he's witnessed all of this. And as a matter of fact, John was part of the two other disciples who, who he was, or the, he was part of the three who was invited when Jesus transfigured on the mount, and he watches Jesus in all his glory in that moment. Later on, John would, would be there right at the footsteps of the cross, watching as his savior, as his rabbi hung on that cross, dying. He would be commissioned by Jesus saying, take care of Mary. He had a close relationship with Jesus. But during his time, when, before Jesus left, John, Jesus had a nickname for John. As a matter of fact, a nickname for John and his brother. And they were known as the sons of thunder. Now, this goes back to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, there's the story of Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. And in, in, uh, on his path, they have to go through the city of Samaria. And if you know your Bible stories, you know the Samaritans and the, and the Israelites, they're not good friends. And so when the Samaritans see that Jesus and his disciples are going through, they don't give them a good enough reception. And the disciples are angry. And James and John go up to Jesus and says, do you see this? Can we call fire and brimstone down right now? Just take care of this problem? Just nuke them all? And Jesus says, let's scale back. We'll be okay. Um, paraphrasing, obviously. Um, he, he says, no, let's take a, take a moment. Let's look at the situation. The sons of thunder. I mean, it, and I mention this because it describes his character a little bit. It describes his default position. When he's angered, he's ready to nuke you. He's ready to destroy it all. This man would go on after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. He would go on and he would be sent out to the churches. He would be sent out. He would be tortured for his faith. He would be sent to all sorts of places. Eventually, he would be thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil tortured by the Romans, and then sent off into exile into the island of Patmos where he received the revelation. And then he would be brought back, and now he is an elderly man, probably in his late 80s, into his 90s, and he's sitting back, and he's writing a letter to the churches. And as he's writing, he's looking at the church, and he's saying, they're in their storm. Now, these churches were... They were rightly so in their storm. Because if you know anything about church history, they were in the midst of their, in the thick of persecution. They were in the midst of just anger and ridicule from the culture around them. And they're fighting all of this. They're fighting all of the external pressures. 
But John is not looking at that. What he is looking instead is the pressure or the storm that is brewing within the church. As a matter of fact, he would, later he would call the people who were starting these strives and he who were starting these false teachings within the church and calls them the antichrist within the church. Paul's looking at them and saying, we need to correct that. Now, I brought up the whole thing about John being the apostle or the, the sons of thunder because as you read this letter, and we're going to do this over the next few weeks, you're going to see him in a completely different light. The John here is a very different John. John now is a father or a grandfather to these churches. And as he's writing, he is writing in gentle tones. He's writing, he's calling them beloved. He's calling them my children. He uses Greek words like technia and, and uh, uh, padia, two words for children. He's in, in very compassionate terms. And he's looking at the church and he is completely different. As a matter of fact, he's called the apostle of love. He calls God, God of love. And because God is love, we are to love too. The man who was once the son of thunder is now the apostle of love. See, that doesn't just happen over time. Instead, it happens when it's a walk that is intentional, when it's a walk that is close, when it's a walk, when it's an experience that is intimate with Jesus. He, God changes him over time. God transforms him over time. And you and I, we, as we walk with the Lord every day, as we commune with the Lord every day, this is what happens. Our rough edges are softened up. Our broken pieces are fixed those things that need to be reinforced are reinforced. That's what God does. And to the church he's writing and he's saying, he gives you the purpose of this book right, at, right off the bat. He says, I'm writing to you for this, that our joy may be made complete. That our joy be made complete. Now, it's not the only purpose in the book. There's more things that he wants to talk about. But my question for us today is this. How do you find joy? How do you come to this place of joy in the middle of a storm? All of us sitting here, I, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, we're come, we know we can relate to this idea of the storm. In our personal lives, it's I don't have to go talk more into it because you know what it feels like to be in a storm. A storm is something that sometimes comes upon us unexpectedly. As much as we plan for it, it never goes exactly the way you plan. There are times where it changes your circumstances. It destroys a, a house or it may, it may flood a basement. It may do things that take you out of your comfort zone. It, it does things that rocks you. It changes your situations considerably. And you, you know what that diagnosis suddenly does. Or the crisis within the family or a conflict with a family member the storms that come at us. But you see, these are not necessarily the storms that John's talking about. He's talking about the storms that the church is facing. Today, us as a church here in Burlington, us as a church, the universal church, we're facing different storms. All you have to do is just look around. 
Turn on the news and you'll see the storms that are facing the church. Just go to have conversations in the public square and you'll see the, 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 way, the, the, uh, the way people react to what the church is. Being a Christian today is very different than being a Christian 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. It's a different world. We're in the middle of a storm. We're in the middle of a cultural storm. We're in the middle of a theological storm. There are so many forces around us. And John's saying, you can still have joy in that. So my question today is this, how do you find joy in the middle of a storm? Because Jesus says this in John 15, 1, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you can have full joy. Jesus is not ignorant to the fact that these disciples would be persecuted, would, be, would have incredible trials. He's not, he's not blind to all of that. And yet to them he says, your joy may be full. There's a false doctrine that's taken hold of the church that John's writing to, and that's the, the doctrine of, the, of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this, where a Gnostic believes in two, two things. There's the spiritual and there's the material. And in this branch of Gnosticism, they rejected the material. They were all about the spiritual. They were the hyper-spirituals. God is spirit, we love that. God is divine, God is our deity, that's great. But what that translated into was them rejecting the humanity of Jesus and saying, yes, God was real, God is God, but he was not human. Christ is not human. And that spills into a lot of our theology and how we, how we practice. We talked a few weeks, about, weeks ago about how our orthodoxy, what we believe, has a way of informing what we do, our orthopraxy. And here he's saying this belief, this false belief of Gnosticism was leaking into the church. And so Paul, or John is immediately writing, and right off the bat, in verses 1 and 2, this is what he writes. That which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is what John is saying. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I looked upon Jesus. I encountered Jesus. I experienced Jesus. All of the things that they say is not true about Jesus, I experienced it. He walked with Jesus day in, day out for three and a half years, and he walked, he experienced the incarnation. The incarnation is this, that God who is God above sent his son to this earth. He was fully God and fully man. God who was God powerful is man just like us. Man who experienced all of the pain, man who experienced all of the grief, man who experienced all of the temptations, yet without sin, man just like us. 
And John is saying, I experienced that. I saw the moments where Jesus shed a tear. I saw the moments where Jesus went hungry. I saw the moments where Jesus touched and healed the sick. I heard what he talked about, all of those things. I walked in his shadow. And he's saying, be careful of the false teaching to the church. You see, for us to be able to have joy in the middle of our storm, we need to make our faith certain. We have joy in our storm when our faith is made certain. John's first task is this. Let's reinforce what's broken right now. Let's fix it. Let's reinforce it. Let's make sure that it is unshakable. Because if you and I are going to face our storm, it is only when we have a right perspective of who Jesus is. That without that perspective, without us knowing the incarnation, all of the other things that we're going to talk about, it's not going to stand. As a matter of fact, we use this image of an umbrella. All of you are familiar with an umbrella, I'm hoping. See, the umbrella has a few parts. One is the handle that has the stem, and then there are these spokes, and there's this cover. But you see, all of this, this is great, but it's useless without this, the handle. Because it is the handle, it is the handle that holds all of this together. It is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the, the scripture that says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That incarnation where it says, God, the deity, God above, God divine became God human. God in both forms. That incarnation is what we hold on to. You don't see people walking around like this. It is this. And it's this that shields us from the storms that are coming our way. It's what shields us from the hail, from the, from the sun. Without the incarnation, we are lost. And John is saying, get this right. Because if you're going to stand in your storm, have the right perspective of Jesus. And then he goes on to say this. You see, before I move on, your faith is a historical faith. It's a guaranteed faith. It is a faith that has been tried over and over and it still stands. Our faith, John is saying, I encountered him. I have tried it, I've lived it, I've experienced the repercussions of this faith, and I can tell you that you can hold on to this, that your salvation is assured because I know who, who gives the guarantee. That you and I can hold on confidently because we know who it is that holds us. He's telling, don't be swayed by what the world is telling you. Don't be swayed by the people within the church who have a different perspective or who, not a perspective, have a false teaching of who God is. He's saying, be sure of who, you're, who the object of your faith is. And then he goes on. In verse 3, he says this, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with those whose fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're telling you all these things. We, as in the disciples, 
John is representing the disciples and the apostles, and he's saying, we've seen all these things, and I'm telling you all of this for this purpose, that you may have fellowship with God and with each other. And when that happens, when you've made your faith certain, when you've had fellowship, the end result is that our joy is complete. In the middle of the storm, our joy is made complete when our, when our fellowship is sustained, when we stay in fellowship. If you're a homeowner in this area, you probably relate to this, this tension that I have. I have this complicated relationship with summer here in New England. And most of you, especially those of you who have lawns, feel this. Because in the summer here, especially, especially over these last few years, what do we have? We have a drought in the summer. And with that drought follows the water ban. A lot of towns have water bans. Belrica, where we live, has a water ban, and so we're not allowed to water. Now, so if you go into our neighborhoods, you'll see something, uh, something interesting. Maybe your neighborhood has that too. Here's what you'll see. Dry lawn, brown lawn, brown lawn, green lawn, brown lawn, green lawn, green lawn, brown lawn. What are the green lawns doing? That the brown lawns cheating? Maybe. See, our lawn is a green lawn, sorry. <laughs> And here's what we have, we're not cheating, here's what we have, we don't use the town supply. What we have, and again, I can't take credit for it because we bought the house this way, it was way more than I could afford to do this, we have something called a well in our yard. What that does is it does not connect to the town supply, it does not connect to the town source, but it instead it digs deep. There's a pipe that goes down into the aquifer where the water stays and pulls out that water and we're able to water our lawn. We're able to grow our plants. We're able to do what we need to do. John's looking at our fellowship and our joy in a very similar fashion. He's saying, you see, your joy is not what you experience from the outside. That's happiness because we're happy when things are good. And we're sad and we're angry and we're upset and all the other emotions when things go wrong. But joy is not dependent on the weather. Joy is not dependent on the drought. Joy is not dictated by a water band, but instead it is what's underneath, what's underground, what is deep within. It's a joy, a joy that comes from within us, a joy that is found not in the relationships of this world, but instead in our fellowship with Almighty, with, the, with God, with God the Father, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. That is a joy that is not shaken by our circumstances, that is not informed by anything else, but it's informed by the, by the Word of God and by our fellowship with Him. We have joy when our faith is made certain and we maintain fellowship. John is saying, in your trial, you can have perfect joy. See, John is elderly at this point. I mentioned that a few minutes ago, probably in his late 80s into his 90s. And when you get to that age, I'd like to argue that you're more of a realist than an idealist. 
Because you've experienced life. You've experienced the highs, the lows. You've experienced the, the rough moments. You've experienced the good moments. In John's life, there have been a lot of rough moments. They've been imprisonments. They've been boiling oil. They've been exiled. They've been prisoned. They've been all of these things. And yet he's looking at the church and he's saying, our joy can be complete. Our joy can be complete. It's in our fellowship with the Lord. You see, our fellowship with God is something unique. Our fellowship with God, yes, it is born out of our, our times of meditation. It's born out of our times of prayer. It is born out of our times of, of engaging with the word. It's born out of our times in serving him. It's born out of all of that. It's, our fellowship with the Lord is deep. Our fellowship with the Lord is like a friend with a friend. Our fellowship with the Lord is like a father and son or a mother and daughter. It's deep. It's an engagement that happens both ways. It's an interaction. It's not something that we simply say a prayer and then we leave. It's place, it's in that, in that fellowship that we find comfort. It's in that fellowship that we find direction. It is in that fellowship that we are, we are strengthened for our task. It is in that fellowship we're called to go. It is in that fellowship. And John is saying, that's what you're called to. A fellowship with God. A fellowship that is only made possible through the incarnation. A fellowship that's only made possible through the crucifixion. A fellowship that's only made possible through the work of Jesus on the cross. We're called to a daily communion with Jesus. See, fellowship with God leads to fellowship with others. If we have this, the vertical taken care of, that leads into the horizontal. There's no way we're going to have fellowship with God and be, stay away from people because God's calling us to engage. God's calling us to do the one another's. God's calling us to love. God's calling us to encourage. God's calling us to be present. God's calling for presence in our communities, for presence within our churches, for presence in serving and all of that. Fellowship with each other. Going to invite the worship team back, and as they as they come back, we're going to take a moment to sing, and we're going to take a moment to worship. But here's what I'd like for us to consider: in the midst of your storm, John's calling us to calling you and I to do two things: make your faith certain, and sustain your fellowship. When that is completed, your joy is complete. Or when that's done, your joy is complete. So if you're looking to stand in the middle of your storm, it is by the word of God and by our fellowship. So as you go into this week, find places where those are lacking. Invite the Holy Spirit to remind you of of your firm foundation. Invite the Holy Spirit. Invite, be intentional in your reading. Be intentional in your fellowship so that your joy may be made complete. One final task I'll give you is this. As we go through these next few weeks of camping in 1 John, 1 John is a, it's a short letter. It's a short book. As a matter of fact, you could read it 
in 17 minutes. I was reminded by one of our teen Bible quiz students that he's memorized it and he could memorize, he could recite it in 10, so even better. How wonderful would it be if we had this message of the cross, this message of incarnation internalized. So as you go into these next few weeks, will probably take us eight weeks to get through this book. I challenge for service to read it once a day. I'll give you that same challenge. If that's too, too much, maybe once a week. Try that. Where we're constantly reading, constantly being reminded of who God is and how he calls us to have joy in the middle of the storm. So as you go, know this. Our joy is made complete. We have joy in, the, in our storm when our faith is certain and our fellowship is kept. Would you join, your, join me in, in prayer? Father, we pray that you would continue to lead us, continue to guide us. Lord, we thank you for the firm foundation on which we stand, the foundation of your, your divinity and your humanity. Thank you, Jesus, for your work on that cross. Lord, speak to us through our, through our, throughout our week. Help us to live faithful to 